Hello and welcome back to the Club Excite Podcast. Today's podcast is titled How Your Energy Influences Your Child's Behavior with Jocelyn Burke and Melissa Schwartz. The Club Excite Podcast is a podcast connecting parents and professionals with the resources and ideas that they need to help their students reach their highest potential. Club Excite is based locally out of San Diego, California and offers innovative education solutions to families and students, both in person and virtually all over the world. Being leaders in the field of innovative education, Club Excite strives to provide multidisciplinary solutions for students struggling academically, socially, emotionally, and behaviorally. Club Excite offers tutoring, coaching, mentoring, and licensed professional therapy in both group and one-to-one settings. If after listening to this podcast, you have any questions about the types of services that are offered and how those services could potentially benefit your student, please feel free to find Club Excite on social media platforms like Facebook and Instagram, as well as visiting our website, clubexcite.com, C-L-U-B-X-C-I-T-E. And today's podcast, once again, is titled How Your Energy Influences Your Child's Behavior with Jocelyn Burke and Melissa Schwartz. Welcome in, everybody. You're going to give everybody just a second to get on with us. And as you are admitted, I'm going to have you muted and video off for now. You're welcome to turn your video on if you'd like to. Um, But what we're going to do is we will start out with just talking and sharing some content, and then we'll save some time at the very end to ask questions. So if at any time you have uh, questions that you want to put into the chat, you're welcome to, and we'll answer those. And if you want to hold your questions to the end, we'll say probably the last 10 or 15 minutes or so um, to answer questions and do that as needed. So we'll give people maybe another second or so to hop on. And I think we can start out with introductions too. So I am Jocelyn Burke and I'm the program director at Club Excite. We provide innovative educational solutions in San Diego as well as virtually. So tutoring, coaching, and therapy for kids with mild to moderate challenges is our specialty. And tonight I am really excited to be here with my good friend and colleague Melissa Schwartz. And Melissa and I actually met through networking for the work that we do. So she's a parenting coach and we're going to get into that in a moment. I think it was in, was it 2017 at one of the child networking events? I think. It was at a child networking event. Time is such a weird thing for me these days. So I know it happened previously. I don't know when. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Well, Melissa is a parenting coach and she specializes in working with parents of kids that are highly sensitive. And I'm going to have her tell us a little bit about what that is and what that means. Melissa, you could just share your definition. What is highly sensitive? Yeah. So I thank you for the question. Um, I always love to kind of help people understand what I mean by that because it's very often misunderstood. So high sensitivity is a term that speaks to 15 to 20, maybe even 25% of the population. And um, what it means is, let me interrupt myself already and say, it is not a diagnostic because nothing is wrong with somebody who's highly sensitive. So it's really more of an indicator of a specific temperament type. So people that are highly sensitive are deep processors, meaning that we need time to Um, sit with our feelings, sit with an experience, and really unravel what went on for us. We tend to get 
easily overstimulated, especially children. So um, uh, I once had a colleague share this metaphor and I just loved it. She said, if you think about a bathtub, um, somebody who's not highly sensitive, it's like the bathtub fills up and the bathtub drains. But somebody who's highly sensitive, their bathtub fills up really quickly and it drains very slowly. So we can become more overwhelmed, more overstimulated just by natural life experience. Um, and that can include things like um, being with people, siblings, going to school, sensory input, any sort of experiences that kind of fill up our bathtub. We also tend to be more emotionally saturated, meaning that we feel things deeper than non-highly sensitive people. Uh, I like to think about uh, Crayola crayon box. Somebody who's not highly sensitive maybe has like 12 crayons in their box. The highly sensitive person's got that giant box of 124 or whatever it is. So we feel emotions more intensely and more saturated and with more nuance than people that aren't highly sensitive. And then um, the last piece is that uh, as sensitive people, we tend to notice subtleties. So that might mean um, we notice that somebody's got a haircut, or we hear a sound that other people might not hear, or we might feel some energy that other people don't feel. Sometimes we talk about like the vibes in a room or the vibes of a person. Um, very often kids of the parents that I work with will walk into a place and say, I don't like that person, or I really like that person. In other words, they kind of feel the energy that's going on around them. And um, they sense something that other people don't sense. It's sort of like how a dog can hear a dog whistle, but humans can't tune into that frequency. Highly sensitive people can tune into a frequency that other people might not be able to tune into. So it's there, it's happening. It's just that not everybody's able to tap into it. That's perfect. And I love the way that you explain that. I heard you say it so many times and every time it just resonates. Um, and I remember actually when I met you, you talked to me about this and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm a highly sensitive person and I had no idea. Totally. You know, and I think a lot of us are and I think a lot of parents and I think a lot of professionals that work with kids are because I don't know, we just have that ability to kind of tune in. I love that you said that, like tune into the frequencies that not everybody can pick up on and, and to feel deeper, you know. Um, and actually, I'm going to ask you this question of what would you say is the difference between highly sensitive and sensory processing difficulties or disorder? Because I know that we do have some professionals on right now that I, I know work with kids that might be either or, or both, but I, I know you explained that well too, if you could share that with us. Melissa. Yeah, so, you know, for the sake of time and, and the focus of our conversation here, I'm just going to offer a real brief overview because we can go real deep and get really heady, which I love to do, and maybe we could do that in another time. But essentially the difference is somebody who's highly sensitive is um, they've got a more sensitive nervous system. You know, they're picking up on um, more stuff that's going on around them through their sensory systems, through their energetic fields. They're becoming overstimulated. Um, they are um, um, more tapped into life. And the way that you were saying that um, you didn't know that you were highly sensitive until we sort of started talking about it. I think that's true for a lot of HSPs because unless you are really struggling with your sensitivity, you might not even recognize that something's different about you. You might know you're a little different than other people, but generally it's when people really struggle with their sensitivity that they look for some support. People that have sensory processing disorder, or I like to call it sensory processing differences, that is actually a diagnostic. That is in the DSM-5, it is something that 
benefits from treatment. Um, it doesn't benefit from medicine per se, but it be benefits generally from occupational therapy. Um, and, and what's going on with somebody who's got sensory processing disorder is that there's some neurological wiring differences. Um, I love to use a metaphor of cars <laughs> to describe people. I know it sounds a little out there, but um, I like to think about somebody who's neurotypical, meaning not highly sensitive, no sensory differences, um, I don't like the word normal because that implies some judgment as though there's one ideal way to be, but the term neurotypical refers to 80% of the population who's not highly sensitive. And I think of them like a Prius, pretty low maintenance. They don't need a whole lot. You know, they'll get you wherever it is that you're going, but they're not super high performance, even at their peak, um, you know, service, uh, um, you know, being, being serviced at their peak. Um, highly sensitive people I like to think of like a Porsche, meaning they are high needs, but they're also high performance. And once all of their needs are met, they're going to function at a higher level. Okay. Now there's no judgment in that, you know, a Porsche and a Prius, they both get you where you're going. They both have their purpose, but what they need in order to meet their optimal level of performance is different. So highly sensitive people are more demanding, especially as children. Where the sensory piece comes into it is if you think about, for example, tuning the volume on your radio in your car. If you went to tune it just a little bit and it jumped way up in volume, that would be a sensory issue. In other words, um, the input that you're, that you're giving to the brain is not being processed in an orderly way and then giving you an appropriate output. And so a Prius or a Porsche can have sensory processing differences. It's not uncommon, especially in children, to both be highly sensitive and have sensory processing differences. In fact, this is one of the areas of specialty that I focus on and I'm finishing up a book. I've been saying that for a long time um, about this topic in particular because it's so confusing even for professionals to understand the difference because some of it is really nuanced and Sensory processing disorder is its whole, a whole other kind of conversation. There are all these different subtypes and way that it, ways that it can manifest. But um, when we are looking at somebody who is both highly sensitive and has sensory processing, then we really want to look at their behavior through a very specific lens of understanding, of kind of sorting out, is this sensitivity, is this sensory, or is this just an age and stage of development that the child is moving through that's, quote, normal and typical for where they are? Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and I want to go into the energy piece of what you mentioned too. I know that's our theme for tonight is how mm -hmm. energy impacts behavior. Um, and as we talk about that, it might be fun to talk about how people that might be highly sensitive or not, you know, how that might impact them differently. Um, but I think the first question I want to ask you is like, how do you define energy? Like, what is that to you in the context, especially of behavior and, yeah. and kids and children? Yeah. What an interesting question. Um, I mean, energy is, everything, right? We're all energy. Everything is made up of energy. Even if you look at something that seems solid, it's actually vibrating at a really, really high state of being. Um, and as sensitive beings, we function, especially as young, as young people, as children, on an emotional level first, 
In other words, we sort of have an emotional response to things. And even as an adult, as a sensitive person, we have this emotional response most of the time before it's logical or rational. Um, I like to credit that to intuition, um, to being connected to our higher selves. Um, and the thing about how behavior ties into it is behavior is actually communication. You know, when we're with an infant and they cry, that crying is communication. They're letting us know they're hungry, tired, wet, needing to be held. Um, we don't look at that crying baby and say, oh, they're crying again. Oh, they need to eat again. Yeah, we understand that the crying is, is communicating to us something that they need. And once children start to have language, what happens is we tend to expect them to be able to use that language to communicate what's going on for them. They can't do it. In fact, many adults can't even do it. Many adults have an emotional response first, and it takes them a while to actually connect why they had that emotional response to what caused it. And when they have an emotional response, very often behavior shows up. You know, we might yell or scream or run away or, um, or give somebody a hug. You know, it, it's not always <laughs> unwanted behavior. Um, but what behavior really is, is, a, is a, it's another form of communication. And so when a child is acting out, when they are misbehaving, what I like to do is get to the root of what is that behavior really indicating. And now we've got a couple of different threads to pull apart. Is this child highly sensitive? If they are, maybe they're overstimulated. Maybe that's what's driving their unwanted behavior. Generally, when we're having this conversation, we're talking about unwanted behavior. So I'm just gonna kind of focus there. I'm sure parents whose kids have lovely behavior are not tuning into this session per se. Um, so let's just stick with the unwanted behaviors. Um, so, so it may be a highly sensitive child who's overstimulated or overwhelmed. It may be that they're picking up on some energy that isn't working for them. Maybe they're feeling tension between two people in the house. Maybe they've got low blood sugar. Maybe they haven't slept enough. You know, um, maybe it's more linked to their physiology. If they're if they have sensory processing differences, that can be a whole other host of. Um, roots that are driving their behavior. And again, I don't want to get too into that because that's like, you know, we'll just kind of go off in a whole other direction. But if a child is struggling with their sensory processing, with the way that their brain is, is taking in information through their sensory systems and then outputting it, their behavior is going to look unpleasant. And very often parents will misinterpret like why, for example, why can't you sit still at the dinner table? I hear this from a lot of parents, um, from maybe a four or five-year-old child. Well, first of all, four or five, that's a really young age to expect them to sit at dinner the entire time. So now we're talking about stage of development. Then if we add into it some sensory differences where a child has a hard time sitting still because of some you know, processing going on for them, that's another thing driving it. And if they're highly sensitive and they can feel mommy and daddy or one of their parents and their sibling are kind of arguing or there's tension. They might not want to be around it. And so they'll get up and leave the dinner table. Or maybe they're just highly distractible and they see a toy out of the corner of their eye and they want to go play with it. In other words, there are all sorts of different roots that can be driving the behavior. And energy is really just one of them. You know, the way that a child is feeling energetically is, is sort of one of those thicker roots that can be at, at the heart of it. Yeah, that's perfect. And I want to go into overstimulation a little bit because yeah. I think that 
energy in general can stimulate us. And I think the, the thing that popped up for me too, I remembered when you were talking was that emotions is just energy in motion. That's literally yeah. what that means. And I know that there's a lot of things, a lot of energy, emotions, things like that, that can lead to overstimulation. And a lot of us didn't, we don't know what that is or how to detect it or what it is. I know for me, that was a new word when I started doing behavioral therapy with kids and I started to realize, oh, everybody gets overstimulated at some point or another, but we may just not know it. Um, could you explain that a little bit and what that might look like in, in a neurotypical or a highly sensitive situation? Sure. So in somebody who's neurotypical, overstimulation probably won't happen quite as quickly or as easily. Um, in other words, again, if we're thinking about that bathtub um, and the bathtub fills up slowly and it drains you know, um, pretty quickly, that person's not going to reach overstimulation all that often. But somebody who's highly sensitive, whose bathtub fills up quickly and then drains very slowly, they're spending a lot of time with their tub overflowing, you know? Um, and the, the challenging piece is once a highly sensitive person reaches overstimulation, there's not a lot that you can do in that moment. And telling them to calm down will not help. <laughs> so don't do that. Don't, don't say that. What's more effective especially if you're dealing with a child, is turning to them and saying something like, you look totally overwhelmed, or you look frustrated, or you look sad, or you look, you look like you need a break, you know? Um, and one of the best things that we can do for a child who is overstimulated is anything that requires breathing, because oxygen goes to our brain and actually helps. It's, I like to think about oxygen as like, um, it's like Drano for that bathtub. You know, it's going to help the overstimulation drain. It helps our amygdala turn off. When we're overstimulated, our amygdala gets activated. That's like the, um, the stress response part of our brain. And so once the amygdala is on, once it's activated, the only thing we can do to help that child is turn it off. And oxygen will do it. So that's why we always say to them, take a deep breath. But as the, as the adult in the room, if we take the deep breath, they're more likely to do it. If you think about um, holding a baby who's crying, usually we tend to hold our breath also because we're ah, now we're feeling their stress. You know, energy. It um, we tend to match the energy that's around us. And as the sensitive person, as the adult who's the sensitive person, it's incumbent on us to kind of be the leader in the way that we match that energy. And if you think about holding a crying baby. If you can take a deep breath, very often you'll feel that baby <gasps> and then they'll kind of like catch it also. So as the adults, you know, if we're with young kids, I like to think about like five, six, seven and under. If your kid is freaking out, if they're having a hard time, first make a statement like, oh, this looks so overwhelming or this looks hard for you. And then you take a deep breath and see if they're able to kind of mirror that. Most of the time that will be a little bit of a help for them. I want to say that what happens for a lot of sensitive adults is we didn't get this in our own childhood. So we didn't really learn what to do with our, over, our overstimulation. Um, a lot of sensitive people that get overstimulated will just kind of explode or they'll implode. They'll kind of take it in and like box up their emotion. And I was just talking with a client this week about her storage cabinet of boxed up emotion. You know, she just, she never processed it. And in the beginning when we were talking about um, what, it, what it means to be highly sensitive, I talked about us being deep processors. What we need to do once the overstimulation passes is revisit it and wonder like, whoa, what went on for me there? Like, 
why did I get so overstimulated? Did I do too much today? Did I, was the, the music was on and the lights were on and, and the, you know, I was cooking. It was like too much sensory input. Was I with my kid all day and I didn't have enough for downtime where I was able to recharge my own batteries? Um, once we can start to process um, and also process the emotions that we have that come along with it, then we're actually utilizing our sensitivity um, for the best, you know, then we're actually taking the gifts of being highly sensitive and putting them into practice. Does that answer your question? I know it was a little all over the place in the way that I was giving it to you, but I kind of wanted to touch yeah. on um, the parents that are highly sensitive and the kids too. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think something that I, I want to go deeper into with you too, Melissa, is what are things that can cause overstimulation within the home and within the family dynamic? Because I think those are things that a lot of times you don't know that you push the button until you pushed it. And then all of a sudden you're triggered and you're spiraling and, or you are, or the kid is, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter who. Yeah. Um, but what are some things that you notice that are like common, just, you know, whether it's misunderstandings or people just don't know about that lead to overstimulation in children yeah. and that cause those behaviors that you were talking about it and what yeah. can we do about it? Yeah. So there's a couple of different things. And um, I want to say here that um, a I love a question like this. And it's also a little bit challenging for me to offer a really satisfying answer because there are so many different types of high sensitivity. In other words, some people that are highly sensitive are introverts and like mellow and quiet and subdued. And then on the other extreme are people like me and you who are like extroverts and sensation seekers and high spirited and like big energy, you know, more like loud. <laughs> um, and there's a whole spectrum in between. And so the more quiet introverted HSPs or, or children, um, they tend to, their, their bathtub tends to get full with um, too much going on around them, too much busyness, not enough quiet time. Um, those kids do really well with like an hour of quiet time after lunch, especially young kids again, um, or even older kids, they need to have downtime to process. They need to have downtime just to be, to step away from stimulation. Um, too much screen time can totally dysregulate a child and an adult. So while I am, I'm absolutely not saying don't have TV or iPads, I think they're very useful tools, especially when they're used consciously and especially in this time. Um, and you want to be mindful in the way that you're using them. You don't want to just throw it at your kid. Um, one thing that I, that I tend to notice is when kids use technology, when they're teetering on overstimulation, the technology may keep the, the bathtub from overflowing, but once they're off the technology, they're right back where they were. In other words, it's more of like hitting the pause button than helping to drain the bathtub. So just be mindful of, of how technology affects your particular child. Um, some other things that can, can kind of, you know, lead us towards overstimulation are, um, depending on how many children are in your home, it could be siblings. Um, you know, when there are multiple children in a home, um, sharing toys, sharing a bedroom, um, just being around a sibling can very easily trigger another child. So that's, again, you know, depending on what's going on in your home, 
that can really um, affect them. And I want to say these days, um, doing schoolwork is really hard for a lot of kids. I, I hear from a lot of parents that I work with that not only is being away from school and away from their friends hard, and um, when I say overstimulating, not everything is overstimulating in the, in the way that it sounds. Again, we're thinking about what's filling the bathtub. What is filling up this child in an, in an unpleasant way? Okay, so overstimulation isn't always my favorite word to describe this, but um, you know, being on Zoom calls, being in front of the screen, having technology issues. I hear from a lot of parents that their kids, like third, fourth grade and under, are having to type their homework assignments. I tell these parents, do the typing for your child. Let them do the assignment the way that they're used to, and then you do the typing for them. Because now they're trying to learn a whole new skill, and then in the midst of it, there's a technology issue, and their work isn't saved, and they're gonna break down. I break down when that happens to me, when I'm typing something and it just disappears, or my computer crashes. I know how frustrating that is, and I'm an adult who teaches emotional regulation. So for these little kids, who are new to all of this, it's really, really, really frustrating. Um, another thing, and I, I think I touched on this a little bit before, is things like not enough sleep, low blood sugar, physiological things, you know, things that are going on in the body can really be dysregulating. Um, too much movement, not enough movement. And again, that kind of depends on who this child is, how they're hardwired. But now that a lot of people are home, some kids aren't getting out and running around enough. They're not tumbling. Um, when we're talking about kids with sensory differences, some of these kids legitimately need hours and hours of movement, jumping, running, heavy lifting, heavy work, um, being squished. You know, there are certain sensory experiences that will calm a specific nervous system. So that's why, again, it's hard for me to offer a real generalization here because some things are real general. You know, everybody needs to have balanced blood sugar. But once we get into a child's specific hardwiring, there are different nuances that may overstimulate them. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think maybe an even better word that you did say was dysregulated, right? Yes. Like, because we can get overstimulated, we'd be understimulated. Um, and I think that that's something I know from a behavior perspective, we see challenging behaviors arise anytime you can't meet the demand that's being placed on you. So when you're dysregulated, yeah. a lot of times it's because your nervous system can't quite show up in the way that you're being asked. And then that triggers something that then creates a response, right? Yep. So is it, is it kind of safe to say then that really it's like dysregulated? regulation that is causing these challenges that we're seeing or like yeah. how how do you think of that yeah, yeah i would say that i mean i i think um so so when i'm talking about the traits of a highly sensitive person i'm actually going back to dr elaine aaron's work so she's sort of like the premier researcher on the trait of high sensitivity and her work has evolved you know there's so many people that have expanded on it over the years and i think jocelyn you really nailed it when we talk about overstimulation, which is Elaine Aaron's word, um, what we're really talking about is dysregulation. And I think what she's talking about is emotional overstimulation or energetic overstimulation, which I would also lump into dysregulation. Um, for me, you know, the, the most important thing I believe that we can teach highly sensitive children is how to regulate themselves. 
unless you're regulated, you can't learn academics. You can't behave nicely or well. Um, and a lot of misbehavior is due to dysregulation. And unless we can identify what is dysregulating that child, we can't really help them. It's, it's just like if you have a crying baby and you can't figure out why they're crying, they're going to keep crying. You know, when the baby cries, we try. Are they hungry? Are they wet? Are they tired? Do they need to be held? What's going on for them? But once a child has language, we expect them to tell us, and they usually can't because they actually want us, what they're, what they're really asking for non-verbally is for us to play detective, to figure out what is dysregulating them, and then to teach them how to get that back into balance. And they need it hundreds of times a day, you know? And, and that's why um, I always say, you know, if we can do this for sensitive children when they're young, they grow up to be adults who don't even necessarily know that they're highly sensitive because they've learned how to navigate life in their sensitive body. It's when kids don't get this in their childhood that they grow up and they're like, oh my gosh, what's wrong with me? Like, why is this such a big deal? Why does this feel so big to me? Why am I different? Why am I struggling with this? Because they didn't learn that self-regulation and I'm one of them, you know, I didn't get that in my childhood, which is why I'm so passionate about helping parents do it for their kids now, right? As an adult, I've learned all of these tools and strategies to regulate myself emotionally, energetically, physically, on kind of on all of these different levels. Um, so yes, I love your reframing of overstimulation really as dysregulation. Yeah. Yeah. I found one of my, one of my tips and tricks has been, is like really getting to know the nervous system of your family, <laughs> really, yeah. you know, what sets you off, what calms you down. Same for your kids, everybody in the family. Cause if we all knew what our triggers were or what dysregulates us and we could be mindful of that, like that would just change the game, you know? And I think you, you talked about a little bit earlier um, and I want you to talk more about how your energy can influence others in the sense that like you mentioned the baby, right? Like if the baby's crying and you hold them and you take a deep breath, I think there's something to be said about energy. We could go deeper into it, but I think whenever somebody takes initiative to regulate their nervous system, that energy in some way is felt, right? Like yeah. kind of like if you were angry, somebody feels that when you're calm, people feel that too. Like, can you talk more about how we might be able to utilize our own awareness to be able to support better regulation energetically yeah. in, in the family unit? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, the, the term that comes to mind as you're asking the question is really it's co-regulation and it's when we regulate together you know, Ooh, and what tends, like yeah, and what tends to happen is um, if we have a parent, again, who grew up without learning how to regulate themselves, um, these people as adults tend to vacillate between like feeling pretty good and angry. Usually anger is the primary emotion that adults that struggle with regulation go to because anger at least feels empowering, you know, it feels better than feeling, um, sad or jealous or lonely or um, um, frustrated, you know, there's power in anger. But what happens with that is then we teach kids that anger is, is a go-to emotion and it sort of like becomes a cycle in the family unit. Um, where, and, and the other thing that tends to happen is when a child is struggling, parents tend to go to anger because now they're frustrated that they don't know how to help this child. You know, they, they may feel um, inadequate that they don't know how to help their kid. They may just be furious that their kid is making a big deal that their peanut butter and jelly sandwich doesn't look the way that they wanted it to. You know, highly sensitive kids have a tendency to be a little bit picky 
you know, they're, they're new, let's call it nuanced, you know, they want things a certain way. And so if a child is dysregulated, unless a parent has really worked on themselves or grown up in an environment where they really um, honed in on their own self-regulation, that parent will tend to match where the child is. And what happens is now we've got two dysregulated people. And one of the things that I really help parents do is learn how to, in that moment, become the regulator, become like the captain, <laughs> because they're the one who's setting the energetic tone. And unless we learn those tools somewhere, whether in childhood or adulthood, it just ends up being kind of like a free for all where we just keep matching each other's energy all over the place. And typically it's like, it, it's easier. I don't know if easier is, is quite the right word, but, um, it's, it takes less effort to match somebody in, in a frequency of like anger or frustration. It takes effort to go from that to feeling good, you know, to feeling peaceful or joyful or happy or content. And so there are certain steps that we need to take to get there. Um, a lot of kids these days are feeling a lot of stress and anxiety because a lot of parents are feeling stress and anxiety. There's so much uncertainty in the world. You know, these last couple months have been weird, <laughs> to say the least, um, and, and very um, unsettling. You know, we don't know what's going to happen. Going out in public is scary. I mean, a couple months ago, I remember going to the supermarket and the shelves were barren and I was freaked out, you know, and so if parents are out in the world and they're bringing that freaked out energy home, or if they're taking their kids out into the world and seeing that, um, it's scary. It is very dysregulating. And um, when we say to children things like, don't worry about it, it's going to be okay, that is not helping them process their emotion. Okay, so this is why that processing of emotion is really important and saying things like, you know, I feel scared too. This, this is scary. I get it. I understand why you feel that way. I don't know the answer here either. We're going to get through it together. You know, you got me by your side in this. So we can both be a little uncertain, which at least helps a child process how they're feeling more than, well, don't worry about it. I'm the grown up. I'm going to take care of you, which leaves them like, well, you say that. And yet we went to Target and that was a really scary experience. So how are you taking care of me there? So this idea of co-regulation really starts with parents taking care of themselves, having a daily practice. And it doesn't have to be long, you know, sometimes I hear um, colleagues in the field of high sensitivity talking about, you know, what HSPs need to do on a daily basis to take care of themselves. I don't know that all that's practical. You can't always take a bubble bath and go for a walk and journal and sit and meditate for hours. Find something that works for you. Maybe it's five minutes of meditation before your kids get up. Maybe while they're eating breakfast, you take your coffee and sit outside. It doesn't have to be these big, grand, huge life changers. These little rituals that you set up for yourself throughout the day that give you the breaks that you need to regulate your emotions, to check in with yourself. Um, one thing that I suggest to clients sometimes is if you have an iPhone, set, a, set an alarm reminder like two or three times a day on your phone that just says, how are you feeling? Sometimes we forget to check in with how we're feeling. You know, a lot of us grew up with trauma in whatever form it was, where we've become disconnected or disassociated from our emotional bodies. And we don't even know how we feel until we're in overwhelm. 
And what I help people do, especially highly sensitive parents, is learn to to see where their bathtub is throughout the day. If it's starting to get full, do something about it. Start draining it before it gets too high. Because once it fills up, now you're dysregulated. Now you're in overwhelm. You know, now you're triaging where you are. Whereas if you notice it before you get there, then you can do something about it. It doesn't have to get that bad before you take care of yourself. So set an alarm a couple times a day that just says, how are you feeling? And take a minute to check in. Notice if your body is tight. Notice, notice if you're feeling, if your brow is furrowed, if you just yelled at your kids, if you are sitting with them and enjoying them. You know, take a minute a couple times a day just to be with yourself. And if you're struggling, if you're feeling dysregulated or teetering on that overwhelm, do something about it before it becomes problematic. Yeah, I love that. I think like anybody that is around a child is their model, right? The kids are always going to match and mirror whoever yes. is around them and whoever is that, that energetic influence on them. And I think the best thing we can do is, is really understand how can I keep myself, I think of it as the parasympathetic state, right? Like how can I regulate my nervous system as best as possible to keep me out of fight or flight so that I can be in parasympathetic state, which is, you know, more calm and controlled and relaxed and you have more choice. And you actually, something you said earlier that kind of hit me was, um, you have access to your executive functioning, you know, when you're in fight or flight, yeah. you don't. So language, decision-making, time management, all that goes yeah. out the window when you're dysregulated. And I think that's so important to note. So if you can do that for yourself as a parent and be in that space where you are in control and your executive functioning is working, then you can actually increase the likelihood of being able to help kids and anybody else around you do that too, which yeah. I think is, is so important uh, that we forget just like that, that, you know, our primal nature, our humanness that yeah. we are, we're all subject to. Yeah, I totally agree. And a lot of times um, what I hear from, from parents is, well, what do I do when my kid is having a tantrum? Or what do I do when I'm dysregulated? And I, I struggle with the question because there's not a satisfying answer. It's like saying to me, well, what do I do when my car runs out of gas? Or what do I do when I get a flat tire? Like, well, you walk to the gas station or you change it or you wait for AAA if you're like me and you don't know how to change it yourself, right? Um, but what's more satisfying is learning how to check in with your gas gauge or learning how to feel there's a problem with your tire before it goes flat so that you don't run out of gas and have to walk to the gas station, you know? So that's really what we're talking about here when it comes to regulation. It's like starting to become more familiar with your metaphorical gas gauge and noticing when you're running low. Because if you run out of gas, it sucks. <laughs> there's no way around it. I can't, you know, there's no magical way to fill up your tank when you're on the side of the road. But if you notice that you're getting low, you can fill it up before you run out. And that's the same idea with dysregulation for adults and for kids. We want to start to catch it before we're in that overflow, that overwhelm, that total dysregulation. Because once you get there, there's no satisfying resolution. Yes, we can slow it, we can calm a child, we can calm ourselves, but the goal, my goal for my clients, whether or not it's their goal, it's always my goal, is to keep them from getting there so often. It's to keep them from getting there so intensely because otherwise we're just in crisis management. And, and what I'm trying to do is keep your car on the road, is keep you functional, keep you moving through your day without all of the breakdowns. 
Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Um, I have, we have a couple comments in here. I've not been the best at, at reading yeah. them out loud. <laughs> um, I saw a couple comments about things that help. So going for the walks in the evenings, listening to music. I think something that's cool is that anything that turns your nervous system into that parasympathetic state will mm -hmm. naturally regulate you. Because the cool thing is actually we all have the ability as humans to process, but we have to get to that frequency in our mind to yeah. where we can let it happen. So it's like getting to that state. We're walking, breathing, music, um, squishes, which somebody asked, what does it mean to be squished? <laughs> squishes are like, um, if you squeeze, like some kids like to be squeezed and hugged. I know this is the common you'll see in kids that are on the spectrum. Um, squeezing just activates the parasympathetic nervous system. It just calms you down and your body just becomes more regulated. That is if you want it and that's what your body needs. Uh, yeah. our, our nervous systems just are And depending different. if a child has sensory processing disorder, depending on the subtype, that that deep pressure feels really good for them and very, very soothing. Weighted blankets also kind of dovetail with that too. Yeah. 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 And it also for other kids can be way too much. Like I know I've worked with yes. a lot of kids that if you can think about touching them, they're totally turned off by that. So totally. I think that's something. Yeah. A lot of us have, you know, I think everybody has their own I think you mentioned like neurological differences and mm -hmm. we all seek and like different things that help us access that parasympathetic state. You know, I might love yoga and meditation, whereas other people might love running and yeah. I don't know, deep sea diving, you know, so everybody's different and what brings them to that. that Absolutely. State. And that's where it gets a little challenging offering these generalizations about yeah what is overstimulating because what's overstimulating to one person is calming and soothing to another. So that's why, um, you know, when I work with a family, I like to get a picture of who a child is. You know, I, I ask specific questions. Um, I figure out their, their, their hard wiring because without having, it's like if you get into a car, but you don't know if it's um, a standard or automatic, you don't know, you might not know how to drive it. You know, you really need all of these specific nuanced pieces to understand a child's vehicle, you know, because that's really what we're figuring out is how does this nervous system work? What kind of vehicle is this body? You know, if you take um, a Prius to a Porsche mechanic, they don't know how to service it necessarily. Sometimes the metaphor is off because I don't know anything about cars, really. But, um, but the whole idea is coming to understand each individual person in the family as a unique vehicle, as a unique body. And once we get what goes on for them, then we can really help them thrive. Otherwise, what, what sometimes happens is in a family of several children, one is a Porsche, one is a Prius, and we're servicing or treating them in the same way. And they have very different needs. And if a child is, um, if their needs are not being met in the way that, that they specifically need, that can be very dysregulating for them, very dysregulating. So sometimes parents are really doing their best and, and giving their child everything that they think is working for them, when in fact, they, they, they don't understand the nuance of what's going on in that particular nervous system. Like the squishes, for example, you know, if there are some kids that don't want to be hugged. They don't want to be touched. They don't like how it feels. There are other kids who crave it, who all day long are asking for hugs and cuddles. There's no right or wrong here. It really depends on who that child is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that co-regulating, one, is a wonderful word. And two, I think if we can all figure out like what it is that causes stress and what causes joy, for each other, then we can really navigate dysregulation a lot better. You know, um, one of the comments we have in here too is, I can stay very calm for the most part, and I can definitely take a lot, 
but it is the constant tantrums or high energy or attitudes that dysregulates me. It's not often that I dysregulate anymore, but it still happens occasionally. Um, to me, that kind of brings up the idea of like proactive regulation. Yes. Um, would you mind talking about that and, and what you think yeah. that is? So for me, a lot of that is around um, having clear boundaries, routines, um, rules, although I don't even love the word rules because uh, I think they often get misinterpreted. Um, for example, you know, very often I'll hear parents saying things like, listen to me, or you're not doing what I'm telling you to do. And I know that that is um, breeding dysregulation because when a child has routines and they know what to expect, for example, when we come in the house, we take off our shoes. Before we sit down to eat, we wash our hands or after we use the bathroom, we wash our hands. Then it do, it's not, you need to go wash your hands. Why aren't you listening to me? It's time for lunch. I'm, I'm dysregulated because you're not listening. You're not doing the thing that I'm telling you to do. Or clean up your toys, you're not cleaning up your toys. Whereas if we can proactively set things up in advance so that they are routinized, so that the child knows what to expect, then they don't need us to tell them what to do. And it it's like it sucks the air out of that power struggle in particular. Um, the other thing is, especially these days, you know, with kids homeschooling and many parents also working at the same time, which is just um, a perfect combination of dysregulation all over the place, having clear routines and schedules is really, really helpful. So setting up, and I like to think about um, the day as sort of three segments. So it's like um, waking up and breakfast through lunch lunch through dinner, and dinner through bedtime, okay? And for each of those segments of the day, you want to have some clear routines. You know, we wake up, we get dressed, we brush our teeth, we come down and have breakfast, we do schoolwork, we go outside, we come in and play, then we have lunch. You know, this is like a routine. These are the things that we do. You might have a little bit of a schedule in there also. A schedule speaks to specific times or time amounts. So, you might say, we wake up, we get dressed, we brush our teeth, we eat breakfast at eight o'clock. If you wake up at six, maybe you play a little bit before then. If you wake up at seven, maybe you don't. In other words, there can be some flexibility in a routine. And then at nine o'clock, we do schoolwork. And at nine, we do a Zoom call. And at 9.30, we do some math. And at 10, we do some writing. In other words, having some clear cut structure is going to be really, really helpful. The other thing I was going to um, add here is for parents that are working from home, letting your child know, I'm getting on a work call, or I'm going into my office to work, or I'm working at the kitchen table. I am not available for the next half an hour unless there's an emergency. When I'm done working, I will let you know. And be very clear with this boundary on the front end that you need privacy, what you're doing can't be disturbed unless they really, really legitimately need you. When kids have this very clear structure, they're much more likely to, when they know what to expect, they're not going to push the boundaries so much. What tends to happen is when that structure isn't there and parents keep saying like, well, we're going to do this. Now we're going to do this. Now we're going to do this. Oh no, don't bother me. Oh no, I'm on a call. No, you can't come in here. And parents are dysregulated those kids will match their energy. They're gonna also kind of freak out because they don't know what to expect and that's the, the frequency that they're, that they're picking up on. Yeah, wow. 
this is such great stuff. Thank you, Melissa, for yeah. sharing all of that. Um, I feel like I had a bunch of questions and things and that, that last <laughs> statement you had just kind of like sealed it in. Um, I'm going to see if there was anything else in here. And if anybody has any questions, they can put them in the chat. Um, also, we've got about 15 minutes left. So this is a great time too, if you want to unmute yourself. We are recording, but you don't have to state your name or anything. Um, but if you want to hop on and ask any questions, now is a great time to do that. Um, you guys are welcome to. But I, th I think, Melissa, actually something that you did mention, it's really, it's finding ways to create space by reducing stress, right? One of my mentors says, um, creating things like routines and expectations give your mind that sense of safety and control so that then yes. you have space to process other things. Because when you're always consumed by processing stress, then that's when you're in crisis mode all the time and you're always going in and out of fight or flight, right? So it's kind of finding those ways to find more harmony and to create more positive energy and, and have that be your baseline as opposed to that, that stress and chaos. Yes, um, absolutely. And you know, a lot of parents, I think a lot of people in general are feeling like um, where we are is such a scary time, but I, I, I want to kind of shift the tone of it and say that this can actually be a really wonderful time to connect with your family to implement some of these structures and routines and and kind of boundaries and new ways of being together as a family that will serve you really really well so instead of looking at this as like a crisis that we're in think about it as an opportunity you know this is an opportunity to change some old things i think the other thing that's going on is I mean, I'm hearing from a lot of parents that um, they've been kind of able to handle things for a while because, you know, the kids were in school and parents were working and they weren't spending that much time together and they could kind of put off dealing with things. But now that people are home with their kids and their families, a lot of stuff is coming to the surface that they just can't not deal with anymore. And a lot of it, when I have conversation, comes down to setting things up in advance. You know, we have so much more influence and power when we deal with it on the front end. It's like filling your gas tank, making sure your tires are inflated properly, getting your oil changed, rather than waiting for the car to be in crisis to deal with it. And a lot of us have been living our lives that way, where we just kind of wait for the breakdown and then we deal with it. And what I think you, you would agree with me that what you and I really do is we're like, we're proactive in the way that we help set things up. We're really conscious about maintaining a maintenance schedule, you know, and, and being sure that we're keeping our vehicles in this optimal condition so that anytime we want to get on the road, we know that we're going to cruise. And that's what we want to do with the kids is use this opportunity to set things up so that there are structures in place that work not just for the kids but for us as the adults too and if we can take that perspective then this whole crazy time that we're in will actually really be of benefit and of of purpose for the, the whole family unit oh absolutely i think yeah. it's absolutely an opportunity for us to get to know each other more um we had a couple good comments while we were saying that i'm going to read out loud uh, your metaphors are so helpful and help us to explain what is happening and what we can do as a family team. I love that. Thank you. Thanks. Um, oh, this is a good question. So I think you were talking a moment ago, Melissa, about like being in that crisis mode. And as much as we want to be proactive, we're human. And sometimes we do end up in those crisis moments and that's okay. Um, when your child is having a meltdown and you need to calm down in order to help them calm down, is there a specific question for how to do that? specifically when you have a baby or a toddler and it's harder to remove yourself from the situation. Yeah. So, you know, in that case, um, what I would, what I would say to the child who's having a hard time is 
I'm having a really hard time too. In other words, when we model for children what we're, what's going on for us emotionally, we're actually teaching them how to handle their emotions. So you don't, oh, you, two things here. One is sometimes I hear parents say things like, um, I want to protect my kids from how I'm feeling. So I say I'm fine. Don't do that. Be honest with them in an age appropriate way. Say, I'm so frustrated too. I'm so disappointed. I'm so disappointed we can't go to the park either. This, I'm, I'm really sad that we can't go on the swings. You know, Let them know how you're feeling. You can model your emotional experience for them. And that's actually going to help them be able to handle their tantrums better in the future. The other thing is if you have a couple of kids, sounds like uh, maybe a toddler or a schoolager and a, a little one, be easy on yourself. Those are hard ages to be home with, you know? And so sometimes you're going to have tantrums. Sometimes, you know, it's, it's like sometimes the breakdowns are inevitable and there's not much that you can do about it. And if you can't walk away to calm yourself down, model how you're feeling, verbalize how you're feeling and say, I'm so upset also, or I'm so angry that I've asked you to clean up your toys three times and they're still all over the floor. So I'm going to go into the other room because I don't want to be a yelling mommy right now. And then, then walk away, you know, and let your kid have a tantrum, you know, tantrums aren't necessarily a bad thing. They're actually a, a release of emotion and sensitive mm -hmm. kids are more likely to have tantrums because their emotions are bigger. They're more nuanced. And so if they can't have something that they want or they're disappointed about something, they're going to be more likely to fall apart pretty easily. So don't take it personally. Don't let it be a reflection of, you know, you having a bad parenting moment. Try not to judge yourself and as best you can verbalize your emotional experience as a modeling tool for them. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I think finding ways to like parallel process is one of the most beneficial things you can do, especially the younger kiddos. Yeah. I know I have uh, had a lot of experience with really young ones where they're just very dysregulated, maybe don't have language even to talk about it. And I noticed that kind of like what you mentioned earlier, the second that, that you start to regulate or like for me and when I started to regulate that it was like their nervous system just tuned into mine and picked yeah. up on the fact that, oh, I can do that. Yeah, let's yeah. do that. Or yeah. even um, I have a five-year-old little brother and he definitely is highly sensitive. And I know yes. Melissa knows that uh, <laughs> and has tantrums. And, and sometimes I ask him, you know what, like, are your emotions in control right now? And he'll, he a lot of times can't say anything in that moment because executive functioning is kind of turned off, yeah. but he'll shake his head. Yes or no. And I say, do we need to do something to get that emotion out? now and let's let's figure this out and he'll yeah. he'll do something that will acknowledge it and then together we'll choose an activity or something that will help him to burn it out and to me it's like you know that that energy in your nervous system that emotion just needs to move it needs it to express it needs yes. to expire somehow you know and sometimes screaming for a second helps and sometimes laughing really hard we did that the other night helps you know sometimes going running outside doing a couple laps just to get the nervous system running yeah. um, I think finding something that will help to parallel process and you do it with them just like you said you know I'm frustrated too what can we do about it model yeah. it hop into it heal it exactly. and also know that I think I, I from different energy work studies I've done um, when you process you can help to process their energy as well so like you taking initiative can actually help them, I think, through the nervous system, start to move that energy in their nervous system too, which can be really, really helpful. Um, yeah, that's so great. This is, this is wonderful. Um, I have something to say if I can. Yeah, knowledge. I think that was a great question. Thank you. Yeah. Oh yeah, go yeah. for it, Herb. Hi. Herb.
And um, um, I think this is just wonderful, Melissa, you're doing such a great job of being able to explain such challenging um, uh, dynamics. Um, but what I, what I was thinking was that this is a time period where we all can allow ourselves to have the time to figure things out with each other. And there's so many things in our past life, the way we used to live, where there were so many things on the list. And sometimes our communication with our family was last. And this is the time when we can say, you know what? This is the time that we've been given. So our family communication can be first. Yeah. Because really, it's the most important thing that there is. And if we have an issue and we're dysregulated, like you're saying, I am or you am, uh, you are, uh, I'm, I'm going to, let's, let's take the time to figure that out yeah. and really spell it out and, and, and figure it out so that we can have this smoother and easier. I like to think of it as a team. You know, we're a team and we're going to, yes. we're going to figure this out now. And whatever that homework is, whatever the, anything else that there is that I have to do, I'm going to put it on hold unless something's burning on the stove, right? So <laughs> yeah. we can put it on hold because you, my child, are the most important thing for me. And, and you and your brother or your sister in terms of the family are the most important thing. So we will figure this out together. And this is a time when parents can, can, can allow themselves to, to do that. Um, to, and then we'll come out of this, like you said, we'll come out of this better because we took the time to figure out those nuances. And like uh, uh, Jocelyn said, we're gonna figure out everyone's, uh, what's going on with their brains and, and their systems and, and how. So that five years from now, so remember that time when we were together, we were stuck on our house? Remember <laughs> when we started to play together or we had that time <laughs> when we figured out uh, there was like five minutes of, of golden magic time, right? And, and we've been doing that ever since. That would be so powerful if we all give ourselves a break and give ourselves some more time. I love that. Thank yes, you so much sir. for sharing. Yeah. Thank you so much, Melissa and yeah. Jocelyn. You know, Herb, you reminded me there's there's one more thing that I kind of wanted to to say, which is that um, it, in in a lot of the the work I've been doing lately, I've been talking about um, trauma with clients, and I want to say that collectively we've sort of got this low grade trauma going on right now. Like everyone is feeling it. The, the world, even though um, like I've been practicing a lot of gratitude and, and really just appreciating how good I have it. And, and, um, and collectively we are all experiencing this trauma together, sort of like a low grade fever. It's just kind of prevalent and out there. And so all of us are a little amped up. We're all slightly dysregulated or the collective is slightly dysregulated. And so I really want to encourage everybody to be easy on themselves. Um, you know, working from home, being home with your kids, homeschooling them, just going to the grocery store is a pretty stressful experience these days, you know, um, wearing masks if, if you're doing that, but not being able to be with friends and family and hug people, you know, like there's so many things that are going on for us all collectively that are amping up our dysregulation. So this is a, a very challenging time to do this work, but it's also the best time to do this work because if we can thrive under these conditions, like Herb was just saying, you know, if we can create these little 
micro connections, these, these new routines that help us stay close to each other that we can um, hold on to as we move out of this experience, which we will. The world's not going to be like this forever. You know, this is where we are right now, but nothing lasts forever, not the good stuff or the hard stuff. Um, then we're really going to, we're going to thrive. And so knowing that this opportunity is really pushing us to the limits. And because of that, it's almost like, um, you know, running on a treadmill on an incline, you know, you're, you're kind of pushing yourselves in two ways. You're going for the run and you have that incline. So we do have this like steep incline that we're going up of this kind of low grade trauma that everybody's tapped into right now. So just kind of keep that in the back of your mind. If you're, if you're getting like down on yourselves or baffled by what's going on for your kids, everything's a little amped up right now. Yeah. I love that. And I, I think it's a good, beautiful reminder just to be compassionate with your self and with each other is that we're all going through it. And I actually, I think that's one of the most beautiful things about what's going on right now is that we are all going through it together. Yeah. And we all have this opportunity to, to be a little bit more in that space of reflecting and laying low, like no extra demands to go out and about and do all these things for most people anyways are being placed. And, and it's like, you don't have to go do all the things you think you need to do. You actually do have more time and space and you can say no to things because of the state of the world. And, and that's a beautiful time, I think, to be able to get closer to yourself, to your family, to, to maybe set the intention to learn what your nervous system likes and doesn't like, what your family's nervous systems do and don't like, um, so that you can co-regulate, you know, and to create that that better rhythm uh, energetically within the system. So awesome. Well, thank you yeah. so much, Melissa. Um, if anybody has any final questions, they can drop them in. Um, we gotta thank you. This was incredible. Oh, thank you so much for coming. Um, how do you teach a five-year-old not to interrupt mommy or is that even possible? That not might be a deeper question. Maybe to book a call, yes. Melissa. I know you were gonna <laughs> offer something, right? <laughs> Yeah. So, um, you know, I see a bunch of names here that are familiar. I see a bunch of names that are not familiar. If we've not ever worked together, I do offer a free introductory coaching call. Um, I'm sure Jocelyn shared my website and you can find the link for it there. If we have worked together, reach out to me. Um, I'm working from home. I've got extended hours, so I will make time in my schedule for you if you need some support. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jocelyn. And I, really yes, I'm just so grateful that you came and did this with me today. And, and thank you for helping to share this knowledge and this awareness. Um, I had a, a person ask a comment about uh, people that weren't able to make it. I'm going to send them an email tomorrow with a replay and link to Melissa's information so that you have that as well. So if you have anybody that wants it, you can either uh, email me or you you can just forward them what I send you and that will, will help them to get access to this. But thank you again so much. Um, definitely check out this awesome. You have just tons of content, different places about all of this. Let us know. And other than that, thank you all. Hope you are well and have a great rest of your night. Thank you. Thanks, Jocelyn. Hello and welcome back to the Club Excite podcast. Today's podcast is titled How Your Energy Influences Your Child's Behavior with Jocelyn Burke and Melissa Schwartz. 
The Club Excite podcast is a podcast connecting parents and professionals with the resources and ideas that they need to help their students reach their highest potential. Club Excite is based locally out of San Diego, California, and offers innovative education solutions to families and students both in person and virtually all over the world. Being leaders in the field of innovative education, Club Excite strives to provide multidisciplinary solutions for students struggling academically, socially, emotionally, and behaviorally. Club Excite offers tutoring, coaching, mentoring, and licensed professional therapy in both group and one-to-one settings. If after listening to this podcast, you have any questions about the types of services that are offered and how those services could potentially benefit your student, please feel free to find Club Excite on social media platforms like Facebook and Instagram, as well as visiting our website, clubexcite.com, C-L-U-B-X-C-I-T-E.com. And today's podcast, once again, is titled How Your Energy Influences Your Child's Behavior with Jocelyn Burke and Melissa Schwartz.